0: Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome to episode 3-268 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we are going to cover some interesting ground. We have an interview with Sean Donakai, a coach from upstate New York who follows and teaches the pose method of running form. Very interesting. And the interview is 28-ish minutes long, so I'll try to be brief in my other comments. In section one, I'm going to take a real-to-life job situation and talk you through it. This is the situation of a professional who has a meeting with their boss to talk about compensation and some thoughts on the right and wrong way to do this. My training has actually been fantastic. I've had a great cycle. I've gotten in a solid 22 and a 24-mile long run with a number of really strong, long, step-up tempo runs. Uh, So I've been doing great. In section two, I'm going to talk you through the concept of macro cycles and periodicity in long training campaigns. And I spent last weekend with Buddy down at my house at Cape Cod, and none of my family wanted to join me, which was good and bad. It was a beautiful weekend, and I got to do what I wanted which was a lot of running and hanging around without having to worry about anybody else's schedule. It was the end or the close to the end of my last peak training cycle week. So I worked in a 24 mile long run on the rail trail and I got a little bit of a late start. I started like somewhere between 830 and nine. I parked my car at the park in Harwich with a couple of gallons of water and a cliff bar out by my car and I ran a six mile out and back four times. So this way I could stop my car to fill my bottle and take a bite of Cliff Bar every six miles. And it was hot and sunny and there's not as much shade on the Cape as I have up here at home. The sandy soil and the microclimate doesn't support big trees. There's only scrub pine and scrub oak. But I got it done. I got to the trail late, like I said, around nine o'clock-ish and I was out for... Three and a half hours finishing up in the hot part of the day, but I'm fairly well acclimated to the heat now. And I just kept my heart rate in or below zone two the whole time with some three minute surges every 20 minutes. It was a good run. And then after those runs, when I do these long, long runs, I try not to just go sit down someplace. I try to keep busy, keep moving, take the dog for a walk, get out, stay on my feet. So I can, you know, flush some of that stuff out. Because if you just sit down, you're going to lock up like the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz. Sunday, I ran a nice easy out and back from Chatham Center. And a couple of miles out onto Chatham Light Beach. And I went really slow and stopped to take pictures and videos and stuff. For another six miles, it gave me 57 miles for the week. And that's a lot of miles for me. And the most I've done since I got injured two years ago. And I, it really felt good to get that volume in. And I'm tired, but I'm not injured and I'm recovering well. And I feel like a real runner again. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. I know you might think it's a bit boring on the rail trail running back and forth for three and a half hours, but. It was Saturday, so there were lots of tourists out there. I particularly wanted to thank the female tourist who did not bring appropriate cycling clothing and treated me to lots of cleavage to inspire my jogging. And towards the end of my third out-and-back, so it would have been somewhere around 18 miles, I actually caught up to a woman from behind on a bike, and I passed her on a slight incline. And remember, I'm running zone 2 slow. So I felt pretty bad passing someone on a bicycle. So I said, well, there's a little hill here, to commiserate her when I passed. And from behind me, she was chagrined, and she said, "Uh, it's an old bike. And so I turned and pointed down and rejoined, old legs. I also found a family of swans with the big white mom and dad and four or five big brown teenagers. Swans are big birds when you see them up close. And I also got to listen through a stack of podcasts. There's a couple of new ones that I found that are, that are quite interesting. One of these interesting podcasts, which the kids like, the college kids like, I've been working through is called Welcome to Nightvale. And it's a theater of the absurd production that's really hard to describe, but sort of morphs public radio with science fiction and absurdist comedy like a warped version of Prairie Home Companion. Therefore, in honor of Night vale, I'm going to give you my garden report in fan-fiction format as an homage. The zucchinis have disappeared from the garden. Whether it is due to the end-blossom rot or scavengers sneaking them through a rip in the space-time continuum to an alternate universe is not known at this point in time we have harvested two or three tomatoes, which surprises us, because they were previously being eaten by an unknown creature of dark intent. Our suspicion is that this creature was trapped and eliminated by the overly aggressive hops vine that has been churlishly throwing a web of spiny tripwires about in an attempt to waylay unsuspecting agriculturalists. The beans that we harvested much to everyone's disappointment, do not appear to be magic. Even the purple ones. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Okay, my friends, here are some thoughts on asking for a raise or anything else you want to ask for. Today we're going to talk through the process of what to do and maybe what not to do when you have to go talk to your boss about a raise. It is important to think through this because most people would just assume that all you have to do is screw up your courage and go ask for a raise. That, of course, is part of it, but there are ways to be more successful. There are things that you can do to make the system work for you. What would happen if I told you, that you had to go ask for a raise or any other thing of value from your company right now? What would you tell me? What would you do? How would you approach it? You might say, I'm going to ask for a raise because I deserve it. Or you might say, I'm going to ask for a raise because I haven't had a decent pay increase in years. And maybe you'd say, I'm going to go talk to human resources about getting that raise because that's what they do. So none of these reasons or things are going to get you what you want. When I have this conversation with people, the first thing I usually figure out is that they have no idea what they want. If you don't know what you want, you can't ask for it, and you probably won't get it. The first and most important step in getting what you want is to figure out what you want. <laughs> you can't just walk in and blindside your boss with a list of emotion-filled grievances You need to get your head and your position straight in your own mind before you do anything of this sort. So what do you want? It is usually more than just money. Most people have a list of things that they would like from a job. So you need to make a list of what you want and throw in all the wish lists and nice-to-have items because you're preparing for negotiation. And when you negotiate, you need to have a list of things so you can give in on some things in order to get other things. Maybe you can't get that 30% raise, but you can get a 15% raise with a car allowance and a new computer for your office. When you are making your list, remember that compensation comes in forms other than salary. There is variable compensation based on performance, bonuses, and commissions. That can be quite lucrative if you are a value-added resource. If you have a way to measure your direct impact on revenue increase or cost savings, maybe you can get a cut of that worked into your compensation. The particularly great thing about variable compensation is that it is based on your impact on the company's fortunes, and when you do well, the company does well. It's a great way to negotiate a bigger pie for everyone instead of fighting over the existing pie crumbs. In compensation negotiation, like anything else, you want to look for that third way and think out of the box. Some people get club memberships, cars, clothing allowances, per diems. I've even seen people get part of their compensation in heating fuel and food to avoid government theft. Think about all these things when you make your big list, and on your big list you will have must-haves, nice-to-haves, and throwaways, and you want to identify each. I'll go into negotiation skills more in a moment, but let's go back to the most important thing you need to get straight, and that is your inner game, your emotional state. You need to find a way to be emotionally detached from the negotiation process. You can't go in angry or needy or scared. You have to go in positive and confident. You need to do whatever it is to get your head straight around this project. Most business people are rational people and love to have a rational business-based discussion with you. What they don't want to have to sit through is some weird emotion-laced shouting match or crying session with you. When you're asking for something from your company, you're selling a product, and that product is you. You need to be able to dispassionately advocate for the value of that product. You will be compensated in exchange for the demonstrable value of that product. The strongest position is if you can demonstrate how that product, you, will positively impact the company's revenue, profits, or costs. Think about it. How do you add value to the company? Do your actions result in customer retention? Do they create innovations? Do they lead to demonstrable, continuous improvement? Figure it out. Write it down. That is how you ask for a raise. You say, boss, I really like working here. I'd like to review with you the impact I'm having and how I can help us be more successful. I've got some ideas I'd like to share and get your help with. Your logical argument has three parts. Here are all the ways I have and continue to add value to you and the company. Here is my plan and my ideas on how I'm going to help the company's success next year and for the next three to five years. And then three, the unspoken thought that you would hate to have to take your value-creating talent somewhere else, i.e., here's what you have to lose, boss. And don't go through HR Human resources, try to meet with your boss or the person who controls the budget directly. Try to get them out of their office in a neutral place. Human resources and review processes and all the rest are specifically designed to take negotiation power away from the employee and commoditize your value. You'll hear, no one got more than 3% raise this year. That doesn't apply to you. You add value. You can quantify that value. It's their choice whether they want to pay now or when they have to replace you because that scenario will probably be way more expensive for them. My point is that there is someone in the organization who can say yes and you need to get to that person, meet with that person. And I can almost guarantee that that person doesn't sit in HR. Do your research. You're going to need facts on how you add value to the company. Activity is not value. I manage 30 people is not a value statement. I have saved 5% of the operating budget year over year for the past three years, and that's worth $300 million in net present value cash to you, sir, is a value statement. Set a high anchor. When you start negotiation, someone throws out a number. That number, right or wrong, is known as the anchor. You have a range in your head. Don't start in the middle of the range. Start above the top of the range. As long as you can back up your value points and do it with a positive manner, no one's going to be offended. Understand the whiplash factor. The person who throws out the first number sets the anchor. The person who receives that number reacts to the offer. When you react to the first offer, exhibit the whiplash factor. Act like you've been slapped. $5,000? I can't live on that! This will reset the anchor when you counter. Make the pie bigger. The best way for everyone to win is to make the pie bigger. How can you give the company what it wants and get paid for it? That's why sales positions are such great jobs to make money in, because it's tied directly to revenue. You can essentially say, Hey, if I give you $10 you didn't have before, can I keep a dollar of it? I know this sort of conversation is uncomfortable for most people. Uncomfortable conversations are good. They create movement and change. You can make it less uncomfortable for you by practicing your pitch... Check your body language. Don't stutter, stumble, look at the floor, or giggle uncontrollably. (laughs) Finally, know your core self-values and be willing to walk away. It's only a job. There's no reason to compromise yourself or your core values for a job. Find a way to make it your passion and get paid for it. And, this is important, A job does not define your core value as a person. You have that core value independent of where you work. Always be willing to walk away. Walking away may make you more whole than staying. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying threatening to quit is a reasonable negotiation strategy. However, understanding the cost of hiring a new person to replace you and quantifying that is a reasonable thing in business. You could say, if they don't give me this raise, I'm going to quit. Now, let's talk through that. Are you willing to walk away if you don't get what you want? You can't negotiate successfully if you aren't willing to walk away. That's like saying, give me what I want or I'm going to shoot myself. No business person worth their salt will take kindly to being threatened or blackmailed, even if you are valuable to the company. Threatening to quit is a valid strategy, but you can't do it in the form of threatening to quit. Try something like this instead. You know, Bob, I really like working for you in the XYZ company. I would rather not have to entertain the offers that I've been getting. This is difficult for me because I see the average compensation for people in my role is $100 a second. And I've only been getting $95 per second for a couple of years now. I would hate to leave given all we've accomplished together over the last couple years and how well I know we're going to do going forward. I know how hard it would be for you to find someone of my experience. Can we have a frank discussion over how we can work together to help me, to help you out of this jam? And my point is that you can relay the information that he's screwed if he doesn't do something, but you're asking for help, not threatening. You're leaving him plenty of escape routes instead of forcing him up against the wall. I hope some of this comes in handy for some of you as we go into the fall budget review cycle. And remember, I get 10% commission on any raises that result from this article, unless you have a better offer. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Donna a chi, as in chi, yeah. chi running. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Chi. Ooh, no, not chi running. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like to tell the story of uh, where I, when I, I messed up my knee in a car accident, and I was trying to learn chi running. Oh, yeah. So I, so I could run again, and I was running in the woods. And, I you know, they want you to keep your chin up and look straight ahead. Oh, yeah. So I stepped in a gopher hole and buggered the other knee. Oh, no. Because <laughs> I couldn't look where I was going. Yeah. So anyhow, Sean, give us the uh, the 200 words on who you are and, and what you do. Well, my name's Sean. I, um, I'm at this point, I'm a running
1: coach, and um, we actually have a running, uh, I guess, organization you could call. Uh, we call it Run Erie because we're local here on uh, the shores of Lake Erie, and we do teach the pose method of running. Um, my partner Julie and I, and we've had the good fortune to work with uh, Dr. Romanov himself and uh, Valerie Hunt, who's a master level coach out in Texas. I myself got into running and came to love it just through getting into the distances and getting chewed up and spit out a couple times, and and just really wanting to understand, okay, how do I become an actual like effective technical runner as much as uh, as much
0: as I'm capable of? <laughs> and so
1: yeah. and, I went from yeah. beating
0: myself. Oh God. No, no, I was saying you live in a beautiful area up there, by the, uh, up in Erie, Pennsylvania, by the lake. Yeah, we've got some great territory to run on up here, and um, some
1: great national parks available. You know, we've got the Peninsula, um, which is, offers a half-marathon loop to anybody that wants to go out or, or you know, whatever distance you like. Um, but it's a beautiful park, pretty flat, <laughs> so it's really user-friendly. We get a lot of great um, amateur runners out there. And I'm just doing their thing, you know, and um, it's been nice with us because we work with people that want to run, sort of offer them the opportunity to not have to go through what I went through <laughs> to learn about running. Uh, like I said, I, I took my beatings early on and, and that's what sort of got me into the more technical aspects of it and the pose method, um, which has actually, I mean, greatly reduced any physical problems that I would have had otherwise with the high mileage and so on.
0: Yeah, You've gone big pretty fast. If you just did your first marathon last year and you're already doing ultras, that's ramping up fairly quickly. Yeah, we did a lot of um, high-mileage training last
1: year with a group that I run with of just crazy runners. You know, that's the only way I could really define them. Um, so we would do, like, a lot of night runs back-to-backs. You know, we would do um, a marathon-length trail run one day, a marathon-length road run the next. So it was, like, a great opportunity to really ramp up fast and within the space of five months, be trained up for a, a hundred kilometer race, which I signed up for <laughs> prior to really understanding what I was getting into, just based on my experience with my first marathon, which, which was an outright beating. That was the point at which I realized it's like, okay, it's either ramp up or you're never going to survive 62 miles of trail.
0: <laughs> so did you go into that first marathon with some sort of time goal? Is that why you, uh, you get beat up so bad? Yeah, I, I was um,
1: thinking in my mind that I could finish around 3:45, um, which actually was fairly realistic. But then when I got to the starting line and I got running, I think I tied in with the 8:34 pace group because pace groups are a wonderful tool for like your first marathon, especially. Right.
0: When you and And 3:30.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, and that, and that's what it ended up. Yeah, that's what where they wound up. And like I said, I was a little overzealous. Like, in a big city marathon, you have a lot of jostling. Uh, There's a lot of people around you, and you're getting bumped into, and so on and so forth. So I just kind of took off. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, way too fast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but it's funny, because it's a a common story. I mean, my first marathon was exactly the same way. I don't remember anything after, like, 17 miles, because I was just cooked, right? And, yeah, and 16. Dump, 16. So many people make the same the same mistakes, but I I'm, I struggle with whether that's a good thing or not, you know, because you have people like you and I who you get beat up like that and you get mad and you go on to greater things, but there's probably other people who get beat up like that and say, screw this, I'm not going to do this anymore, it hurts. Initially, um, you go through that, uh, I guess it breaks down your ego
1: where you think, yeah, I'm, I'm this runner, I'm going to go out and nail this thing, you know, I'm going to look like a Kenyan the whole way, and it's going to be glorious. And then, um, so you really have to reevaluate, and that's when I think you make your decision. I think everybody should get chewed up and spit out at least once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, I think in my case, it's probably six or seven times before I learned my lesson.
1: Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> 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 Realistically, you know, I had some bad experiences. Like uh, my first 50 kilometer race was uh, the Laurel Highlands 50K downstate in PA. And it's like a nine-mile climb to start the race, uh, basically. So if you're smart, you're power hiking. If you're overzealous, you're trying to run this thing. And um, I remember that day, I was actually ill, too, so that just added to the fun. But I remember being done at 13 miles in that one.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> and then long, having... long, that's That's uh, 16
1: <laughs> miles short. <laughs> yeah, and you're looking down the throat of this, you know, um, Fast distance and stuff in front of you, and thinking it's like, am I going to do this? And it's like, sometimes that's when you find, you know, people to group up with. In my case, I grouped up with uh, two girls that I knew from the area up here, and we just sort of formed a power trio, and uh, we ran the rest of the race together.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you're fit, you can start walking, especially in an ultra, and it's okay. You can finish if you're fit, you know, because you can recover. The cool thing about that kind of plateau training that you're doing with all the volume is that you can run yourself into the grave and then you can refuel and sort of recover in, in a half an hour. And you have the time. Yeah, of that.
1: Definitely. That's what we, uh,
0: we called it partying at the aid stations, which
1: wasn't really partying, but it was just basically taking advantage of all that nice free fuel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's
0: <laughs> something that you can only do though if your body has the volume and the, and the training experience of, of getting out there and going into debt and then recovering a bunch of times. So that, yeah, That's for sure. I'm, I'm just wondering what we could do for beginning runners, you know, who are jumping into their first marathon on, you know, let's say 30 miles a week of training, you know, and oh, they yeah. feel really good because that's the most training they've ever done in their life, and they feel really fit, and, you know, we got to create some sort of like, um, you know, shirt that has electrodes in it that... Is tied to their Garmin, so every time they go above a certain pace, it just shocks the bejesus out of them. Like that would be call. wonderful. Yeah, like a dog <laughs> collar. I, I still need that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really, uh, I really think that if if people would listen to the advice that's out there from all the people that have experienced it, that's the first step. Because I mean, I knew like internally that I was under hydrating, I wasn't drinking enough. But like I said, you just get caught up in the ego and the thrill of all those people around you that are doing their thing, and you want to do it better.
0: (laughs) Yeah, same thing. My first marathon was a little hot, and since I was pushing so hard, I was a little little, uh, sick to my stomach, a little nauseous. So I said, I just won't drink as much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, great idea, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'll just push through it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember thinking it was right around the half marathon, Mark, where I thought to myself, yeah, I should really start hydrating. It was 87 degrees that day, and close to like the closing miles of the race, they were actually telling runners to slow down, which in a speed race or a road race, <laughs> that's very
0: interesting. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah, so you stepped up your mileage now. It seems like you're doing a lot more volume, but you also took the time to work on your mechanics so that volume isn't um, detrimental, right? So you can't just go out and start laying down 100-mile weeks or 70-mile weeks if you have bad form. No, that's for sure. (laughs) And before there was Born to Run, before there was Barefoot Running, before there was Chi Running, there was this uh, gentleman named Dr. Romanoff, and he had the idea, with a lot of elite runners, of Pose running, indeed. <laughs> and uh, you're so you're uh, you're a throwback now to the pose running. And I think that was the early '90s. Actually, he came out with that stuff.
1: That was when that's that was when uh, he actually came up with this like years and years ago. That's when it sort of started coming out into the running community in the states, is what I would say. He wasn't very well received in his home home uh, territory, of course. But yeah, I mean, the thing that got to me about it was. Uh, I guess the reliance on scientific principles like gravity, <laughs> yeah. which are a lot more effective than like muscular tension and drive and push and and the things that we think of when we think of an athletic activity.
0: <laughs> right. It,
1: that was it's the beauty very, of it. Me.
0: Yeah, it's very similar to the chi method, or or I mean, there's similarities, and the fact that you're allowing gravity to pull you as opposed to pushing your body. Right.
1: Yeah, and and I think um, I think good mechanics translate to whatever label that you want to ascribe to them. Like I am i myself have limited familiarity with like, you know, like evolution or natural or chi running. Um, but it's just pose happened to grab me. It's what I happened to be exposed to through basically good fortune or, you know, just incidentally. And I met a pose runner. I watched, and that's Julie, my partner um, from running And I watched her run and I just thought, You know, I'm looking at these pictures of myself coming across finish lines, and I was getting competitive to the point that I, you know, I'd take between first and third in in my age group, and I'm fast. So I'm I'm thinking, wow, I must look like Achilles coming across the finish line. And then I'd see these pictures of my just broken, horrible, flopping form, (laughs) and I thought, I don't look like Julie. Yeah,
0: sticking that foot way out in front of you.
1: (laughs) Oh, indeed. (laughs) Heel striking, you know, uh, butt kicking, you know, uh, all the – All the things that can just lead to all kinds of bad problems and and injuries, which I experienced, and compensation injuries, which come after the initial injuries.
0: (laughs) Yep. Nope, indeed. So give us the uh, the 100-word, give us your best pose running description, explanation.
1: Pose operates on what they call the pose triangle, which consists of pose fall and pull. Obviously, that's a snapshot of a series of motions. Running is obviously a flowing movement, so it's hard to isolate and say, okay, this is this movement, this is this movement, this is this movement. But basically what happens is when you shorten the timing between the pose, um, which is just basically a snapshot, like I said, the fall and the pull, you're really reaching efficiency at at a much higher level. So you're not trailing out. You're not pushing off. um, You're taking advantage of the physics that are just naturally available. If if you watch a sprinter like Usain Bolt um, who – it's just, you know, obviously a God-gifted sprinter, bless him. <laughs> but if you watch his form, you'll see pose in action. And it's not because he's a pose runner, it's just because the physics are there. It's like the way that I like to uh, best described was Dr. Romanov didn't discover pose method, or I'm sorry, he didn't invent pose method, he discovered it. And he just tapped into the physics that were occurring in um, not only the movement of running, but in all kinds of other sports as well. And there's it's just good physics, which made sense to me being analytical. I guess so does that make um, sense?
0: It's <laughs> it's it's a, a four foot strike with a little bit of a forward lean and uh and a shallow uh shallow kickback, right? With your hands and multi, hips forward, um, tall upper body. Sounds like good running form to me.
1: Indeed, yeah. You know, the uh the pull is was like my first realization, I guess you could say, in the technique, because it just, that's what literally takes the push out of your running. I was actually on a trail run with a friend of mine, and I'd been doing drills and training. Things were starting to make sense a little bit. And when I felt the pull, I I just noticed the effort in my running decrease, like, dramatically. So rather than, you know, like, just jamming up hills, you can literally fall up a hill. (laughs) (laughs) And it makes still running so much easier, or it did for me, you know. So through my experiences and the experiences of our students at run Erie, we've just seen a lot of decreased effort and a lot more efficiency. We'll bring people in and work with them for like an hour, and their heel strike is gone. It's it's just beautiful because you know that amateur to middle-of-the-pack runners are the ones that need this.
0: Right. You know, right. Um, right. to
1: to not get plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, runner's knee, you know, hip flexor issues, like all of these kinds of things, when you really tailor your efficiency, obviously, you know, your injury rate's going to plummet. And right. that's just kind of, you know, uh, that's that's the beauty of it. And I, I just love to get other people into running. <laughs>
0: so one of the other things I noticed with form is that there seems to be a pace, at least for me, where my form cleans itself up, right? So if I'm looking at the finish of a marathon where I've, You know, where I'm averaging a 715 mile. If I'm looking at that finish line photo, first of all, I'm in great pain, but I've got really good form because I'm moving pretty quick, right? So I I found that uh, track work um, helps me. Track work at a you know a tempo or a better pace almost forces you to get cleaner form, because otherwise you're it's it's like driving a car with loose wheels. You know, it's fine at 25 miles an hour, but if you take it up to 65 on the highway, it's going to explode. Oh, there's no doubt, yes. Do you, um, do you find, find that's true? And then and then the challenge I have for that is now I'm older, so I have to try to run slower, and it's hard for me to translate that good form down to uh, you know, an 830 mile. Indeed. When you go
1: faster, you naturally tighten. And obviously, one of the biggest things that I've found to help at a slower pace is cadence work. At a 180 cadence or 90 beats per minute on a metronome, per se, let's say, your form, regardless of speed, is still going to be pretty much the same because your foot isn't retaining that contact with the ground. Like the more time, obviously, you spend on the ground, the more beating your machine takes. So if you do cadence work in addition to, like, track work, which track work is invaluable, like you say, it's a great thing to do. Not everybody wants to do it or does it. If you're not going to, I would recommend at least getting into some good, solid cadence work and just getting used to that feeling of running with that rhythm. Um, you can eventually program it into your into your machine and, and just take a, advantage of all that beautiful elasticity that's in the hamstring muscle, which is the big driver muscle that we should be using to run. Whereas a lot of us are, are up on our toes or heel strike and are using our calves and recruiting all these smaller muscles that aren't up to the task, and that's where the injuries come in.
0: Yeah. So the way I'm sort of doing it is I'm I'm burning my form in at a at a higher pace, right? and then translating that down to a, a lower pace. But the other way to do it that I've seen people do and coaches do is burning in the form at a, at a lower pace that then translates up to race pace. So, for example, doing one or two of your easy workouts a week at a, a program cadence and a program form much slower.
1: Indeed. Well, what I say is this from my experience as a coach – When you start bringing in a technical aspect to running, people automatically slow down because they have to take stock and they have to say, I'm monitoring this. You know, uh, is my back straight? Is my head up? Are my hips forward? Am I pulling? Am I falling? You know, there's all these things going on. So naturally, you're going to slow down at first. If you can work good form consistently and nail it in a slower pace, then it'll, it'll come with you at a higher pace. Now, by the right. same token, you can, you can take a student and school them basically and then say, okay, go ahead and sprint, and it'll just fly apart. So the, yeah. the, the practice of the form is, I think, integral. You know?
0: Right. This brings me back to triathlon where, you know, if you go to the pool, you can't just jump in the pool and learn how to swim. Even the good triathletes do drills because they have to remember that form in the pool because with swimming, with the drag of the water, if you don't have perfect form... You're just wasting energy. You know, that's what we're saying is you need – we've never done this in running because running is such a natural thing. What we're saying is we should start people out with the form. And that would be beautiful, and that is entirely
1: our approach. What we say is you can't just go on out on a golf course and start golfing, much similar – you know, very similar to the pool principle. The problem with running is that there is no standard per se. You know, there's very little technical schooling like – as perceived widely available by the masses. So we think, you know, um, I, Eric Horton said in Born to Run, and sorry to quote out of a book, but he said running is as nuanced as any other activity. And I got the biggest kick out of that. Because <laughs> it's like that, that's so true, you know. Um, there's a lot to it. And the problem is, is we can go out and buy a $150 pair of running shoes and go out the door and just start running willy-nilly and nobody's going to tell us otherwise until our body tells us. And then, you know, by that point, it's like you have a problem.
0: Yeah, so what we're saying is good practice for your, you know, for your average Joe doing 30 miles a week, maybe scaling up for a marathon a couple years or a a half marathon a couple times a year. They should be working in one or two form sessions a week as part of their training.
1: Easily, yes,
0: definitely. And, uh, like, what we usually do prior
1: to, like, our coaching sessions is we'll run people through movement drills that use the principles behind running. And if you bring these little drills in, um, you do them before a run, um, then you're sort of starting off, you know, rather than just walking out the door stretching, you know, or or doing just like a, you know, uh, yawn morning stretch and then start running, which is what most runners do. Um, If you bring these little things in like mobility, some skill drills, and then you head out for your run, um, you're already starting
0: off ahead
1: of the game. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing that running form. If you start doing the drills, you'll start to realize that you have some uh, structural or some infrastructure problems, right? Your hips might be too tight, or your, you know, some there's something there that it will highlight. So you're running with poor form sometimes to compensate for something. And, oh, indeed. Yeah. Right. So that it'll also help you with those things because so you got to have real loose hips and everything else to run smoothly in a in a good form, right? Indeed. And and the
1: hips, obviously, with runners and the hip flexors especially, are always just so tight. We actually use a method of of loosening and, let's just say, increasing flexibility. We call it mobility, sort of something that came out of, I guess you could say, the CrossFit world um, is what sort of really exposed it. And we do a a lot of mobility training. My partner, Julie uh, Robinson, and myself, actually, before we run, whatever the length of the run, we always do mobility work. And that's something I never did. I was the guy that ran out the door.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. So is the mobility work, is that an active stretch or a static stretch, or what are you doing? I call it increasing
1: uh, mobility, especially around the joints. It's not so much a stretch per se. It's something that I would encourage people to maybe do a little research on, because it uses techniques like tacking and slotting, where you're actually recruiting your muscles and making them ready for activity rather than doing a static stretch. Like you'll see a lot of runners doing the old hamstring stretch and stuff before a run. Um, Stretching is best done after an activity or, you know, we found usually beforehand you're mobilizing the joints. um, You're mobilizing the hamstrings. Like I said, there's a lot of technique available out there and I would encourage people to research it for sure because the difference in how you feel when you run and and after and the reduction in soreness, the ability to recruit, like, longevity in your running, to say that, you know, you can increase your mileage, you can increase your speed, you're going to feel a lot better, a lot looser. And then also bring in that stretching after you run. You know, that's the time. Now your muscles are warm. Everything is going to be nice and receptive. The joints are loose. You're ready to stretch and not pull something.
0: Right. The other thing that good running form requires is is some, some core right? You need, oh, indeed. <laughs> you need to have some core in order to maintain that position, especially over the long haul. So what do you guys do in your pose training to help people with their core strength? Actually, last night, a good example.
1: Usually when we bring students in and we like to show them where their core isn't, because a lot of us, you know, you might lift weights, you might run, you might do push-ups, you might do this, you might do sit-ups, but you're not really recruiting the core muscles and everything, all the tie-ins to the core muscles, like the slings and the, you know, and, and, and like um, all of that. So we usually run through people through plank hovers as part of our warm-up and mobility. And we'll have them, you know, we'll run them through various stages of plank. We'll have them do a hold and then get up and run just so you feel that engagement in the core. Because when you run, you're not necessarily consciously engaging the core per se, but when you wake it up, you'll feel it. And then you get up and you move and you say, okay, the core is the foundation of the body and everything flows from a foundation. You, you know, if you put a beautiful house on a crappy basement, it's just going to, you know, <laughs> go to heck in a handbasket. So and
0: again, again, going back to, I'll use a triathlon uh, metaphor for example, where when you get really good at swimming, you're not actually pulling the water. You're holding the water and rotating your core. So all the power that, yeah, from your but, core... So the same thing yep. is true when you get your running form down. Like you said, you're not pulling or pushing; you're just falling and catching yourself. And exactly, your core, your core is, is tweaking you through there. Yeah, it's very good, very good. So what else <laughs> you got going on? You got a you got a hundred miler coming up, and I think you know why. When you think about form and you think about core, where it really comes into play, where I've noticed it since I started working on this stuff, is at the eighteen mile mark. Of a marathon. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. When you are physically tired and your legs are physically tired. If you can, instead of collapsing, you know, your shoulders droop, your arms droop, your chin droops, you start, you know, slug, slugging it out. Instead of doing that, if you can straighten up and relax, and the same is true with your tempo runs or your races. If you can relax into a good form, then your, your core can take over and you can use that, power you through those last miles without effort.
1: Yeah. And that's so true. And that comes back to foundation and the importance of cross training too. I mean, I know a lot of elite level runners that don't cross train at all and they just run. The rest of us <laughs> really need to be thinking about a good functional cross training program of one type or another, whatever calls to you. But I would say one that recruits the core muscles and just encu- encourages that full body movement and strength. You know, uh, it's just like I said, for, for those of us that are mortals, that's what we need.
0: <laughs> yep. Nope. I, I hear you. That's good. All right. Give us your links. We'll let you go. Uh, anything, anything you want to uh, talk about or leave people with? I would say, you know, if
1: you have not evaluated running forum, do so. And if you don't mind, uh, we, we, we are on Facebook, Run Erie. We have a lot of great running bills that come from master level coach Valerie Hunt. Um, we usually post them every day. They're a little sh- couple-minute shot of some technique drills that you can do on your own. You know, just sort of start bringing that technical aspect into your game.
0: And is that uh, that an open Facebook group?
1: Yes, it is. Anybody, if you if you like the page, the the advice is free <laughs> and comes through every day. You know, we always have. Uh, there's always training tips, and like I said, you can also link to Valerie Hunt's webpage, Run ATX through Facebook as well. She's out in Austin, Texas, and she's just amazing, and she's gotten us to where we are, and we just like to give that back because it's really been a privilege to learn from people like her and actually from Dr. Romanov, and, you know, that's yeah, always a thing that we like to communicate.
0: Yeah, and thinking back 15 years, I remember Dr. Romanov had a whole, like, book and program and stuff you could buy, and so there was this stuff out there. Pose Method isn't behind. Oh, yeah. No,
1: not at all. Pose Method of Running is one of his books, I know, and that's a that's a good one to look at. And like I said, you know, even if uh, even if you're just on the outside and want to look at a couple drills, you know, check out our page or Valerie's, and and just you know start integrating this stuff. It it will help. And if you can get yeah. with a coach, get with a coach. You know, <laughs> that's that's key.
0: Right, right. All right, man. I got to let you go. Excellent. It was well, great. has been talking great talking to you. you. Right. <laughs> nice talking to you too. Yep. All right, Chris. Bye bye.
1: Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports.
0: How to use waves in your training. Periodicity. When training for a particular race, there are a number of plans you can choose from. It's a bit like choosing a diet or an exercise program. Everyone has the guaranteed solution for you that will do the trick. And most of them do something, but seldom is any one approach correct over a period of time. When it comes to training for a long race, you might consider a longer horizon to get the most out of your genetics and peak in the right way at the right time. Most plans for the marathon build up distance and volume of miles gradually over time. And this will give you the endurance to run the event, but long runs themselves won't give you any speed. They may keep you from slowing down, but they won't speed you up. To speed up, you need some sort of speed work. And it comes in different shapes and sizes, from track workouts to tempo runs, but it's all designed to make you faster at your chosen distance. Then there are specific strength workouts. This is where you focus on making your muscles stronger, whether those are your quads with hill work or your glutes by doing planks. It is another way to get you to the finish line without slowing. In addition, there are workouts that focus on your form and are meant to help you run more efficiently at the same level of effort. The trouble is, with all these different flavors of workouts, your head will start to spin. You can't do all the workouts all the time. Some of the worst training plans I've seen try to cram a little bit of everything into a three-month training plan, like a bad recipe, a handful of this and a dash of that. The way the pros do it is they periodize their training. They focus on different aspects of improvement in different cycles leading up to their event. In this way, they build one cycle on top of the previous cycle to add improvements without losing the value of the previous cycles. Typically, this will take the form of building a solid base and then fine-tuning as the event approaches, and it's not a 100% shift in the focus of your training. You don't go from 100% speed work on the track to just long runs. You move the focus of the quality workouts and leave the base amount the same. When you set up your training this way, you create macro cycles, and within those macro cycles, you have micro cycles. For example, let's say you have a six-month training plan for your marathon. You might set up three macro cycles of two months each. In the first two-month cycle, macro cycle, you're going to primarily focus on building up a good base by running good form long runs and doing heart rate training, building up that base fitness. In the second two-month cycle, you might focus on Building aerobic fitness by switching your focus quality runs to long tempo and hard step up runs. And in this way, you're laying down some good, longish, hard efforts on top of the fitness you've built. And in the final two month cycle, you might then focus on some faster speed work and some course specific workout like hills. This will build speed and strength on top of your fitness. A good coach will design these master cycles these macro cycles for you so that you peak at the right time for your event. The micro cycles or waves within each of these macro cycles might be weeks then, weekly cycles. And it may take the form of week one, medium effort and volume, week two, hard effort and volume, week three, very hard effort and volume, week four, back off or relative rest. And in this example the micro-training waves would repeat through each macro cycle. So why do you care? Well, you care because if you have the time to train, you can set up a plan that focuses on specific areas of strength and weakness in a rigorous, periodic fashion that will get you to the starting line much fitter than if you tried to do a little bit of everything or a simple incremental load of volume and intensity. So, for example, since I'm running a marathon every month, I have just about one cycle, macro cycle, between marathons, and I can use that to focus on a weakness. I had a six-week gap between these last two races, and that last race felt, uh, felt like my endurance was poor. So I focused this last cycle, this current cycle, on getting some heavy miles in and some long tempo runs to up my fitness. And now that I'm just two or three weeks away from the race, I'm doing a micro cycle that is fewer miles, but focusing on downhill running for this specific race. And at the same time, I'm pulling back on the volume to taper so that my legs will be ready when I show up for the race. So ask your coach and look at your yearly training cycles to see if there's an opportunity to work in some macro cycle focus to your training. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. Good night, kind princesses and princes. Parting with episode 3-268 is such sweet sorrow, yeah? Everyone send good vibes out to our friends, Eric and Steve, who are running Leadville again. I don't understand it, but good luck to you, Steve Spears from the 100 Push-Ups fame. Enjoy running in the desert at altitude for 30 hours straight, guys. Have fun. I have got my plans all set for the Erie Marathon in Pennsylvania in September, the Denver Rock and Roll in October, and the Fort Myers Marathon in November. And I've got a decision to make on Boston. I can either pay the $350 and take the You Didn't Finish bib or roll the dice and hope I BQ at Pocatello on August 31st. The two registration periods don't overlap. I'm leaning towards rolling the dice. What's life without a little risk? And I do feel pretty fit. (laughs) I'm in my taper for Pocatello. I have been doing hill work this week. I've invented a new workout for the Pocatello Marathon. It's a version of the up and over. There's a hill next to my office, which is 0.4 miles up on one side and 0.6 miles up on the other side to a point, maybe 300 feet of gain at the top and instead of pushing it on the ups I do the same workout and I push it on the downs recovering on the ups now this is a solid leg workout I'm in the low six minute mile range on the downhills and on the ups I'm moving pretty slowly but I'm focused on form and I'm still getting that leg workout and I did eight of these yesterday and I'm pretty sore My weight isn't perfect, but I'm managing to keep it down in the low 180s, even with my travel schedule and my lack of willpower. I put the audio version of my second book of running stories up on the website, so go to Run Run Live and click on the audiobooks tab and you can buy it. It's 60 stories worth of some really good stuff, and I think you'll like it. Plus, I know where you live, and I can probably catch you. That's it for me. I have to go take the dog for a run. Have some dinner. Ciao. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm K T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing if you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing. You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao!